I'd rather see a minstrel show than any other show I know. How those comical folks with their riddles and jokes. I hear is the riddle that I love the best. Why does a chicken go and know the rest? Yes, sir. I pawn my overcoat and vest to see a minstrel show. I'm Laura Kuzno, and welcome to Just a Music Podcast, where I, Laura Kuzno, tell you about some music history, how it relates to the world around us, and hopefully introduce you to some new tunes. This show is theoretically for everyone, but I will swear, and when it comes down to it, we may sometimes need to talk about some sensitive topics, so your wee wins might want to sit this one out. I'm sorry I haven't been around since uh, November of... Um 2020? <laughs> that school's really tough. And in the time that you've last heard me, I've successfully completed and submitted and graduated from my master's in history and Jewish studies. I've moved home, opting not to do a PhD at the moment because that shit's expensive as hell. And I need to make some money before I do that because, man, I am in fucking debt up to my neck with the government right now and it sucks. And I'm looking for work right now to fund a PhD. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's been giving me some real grief. So as of writing this little intro... I've submitted around 180 job applications, done about five or six exams for said jobs, and had not one interview in in that time. So uh, let me tell you, living in a small shit-ass town like this in the middle of nowhere, not being able to afford a car or a bus ticket or whatever the hell, just to go out and have a good time is, is really shitty. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> yeah, if y'all were wondering why I've been gone for so fucking long... <laughs> It's because I was doing all of that. I was doing everything. So now we're back. Going forward, I'm going to aim to put out a new episode roughly once a month. Uh, this This whole doing two a month thing was really crazy. I mean, it may have worked well during the early parts of the pandemic, but trying to find a job on top of just doing stuff around the house to help with my ma. And of course, doing job apps is like having a full time job in itself, which I mean... I know I'm not the only person in that situation right now, but it's, it's, it's a pain. So, and once I have a job, I'm going to need to work around my job to keep this up. It's a, it's a pain of the dick. So I'm also the only person working on this podcast. Uh, so that means I do all the research, editing, recording, sound editing, sound recording, and promotion for it, which is an awful lot to be doing by oneself. So I think one episode a month is probably, it's probably enough right now. <laughs> if I ever were to make this a full-time thing, I think I would try to try to get two, but what can you do at this point in time? Uh, the scripts alone for this are about like 7,000 words. So without without all the production end of it tacked on, that's that's a fair bit of research. And uh, not just that, but the fact that I've graduated means that I do not have access to my academic databases anymore. <laughs> at least the ones that I had access to via the school. So I'm kind of working off Project Muse right now, which is great. But I mean, it's not the same as having access to, you know, JSTOR and various other things. So hopefully when I get a job, I'll be getting a JSTOR subscription. But for now, the $200 a year sub is a little bit too much on somebody who is earning nothing and nothing. <laughs> so shit's going to be slow moving for a while unless one of you wants to hire me. <laughs> uh, so hopefully, uh, brain and willpower willing, I'll be able to get you some uh, new tunes and hopefully some new knowledge roughly once a month or so. The last thing I wanted to say before we get back into it and start talking about some music is that I've put up the logo for the show, the little Just a Music podcast with the treble clef, um, on my Redbubble account. So if you want to help fund that JSTOR subscription, maybe, 
to help me make these episodes a little faster or just want to show support for this podcast, you can head over to Redbubble and search uh, Just a Music Podcast. You can find the logo on stickers and t-shirts and water bottles and notebooks and just about anything I can stick the ding-dang thing on. (laughs) In terms of setting up a donation system like a Patreon, I'd love to, but I mean, I want to make sure you guys are getting some consistent free product first before I start asking for a little assistance because, man, that sounds like a dick move otherwise. (laughs) With all that being said, we're going to get back into it. While y'all aren't going to get a violent content warning this episode, you're definitely going to hear a lot of bullshit this week because we're going to be talking about the American Minstrel Show, which was easily one of America's greatest tragedies of entertainment. I want to preface this episode with an explanation. I feel like my prefaces are turning into somewhat of a tradition for the show, but I mean, we're talking about sensitive material. I think you guys deserve a preface every once in a while. I won't be using the n-word at all in any context, also any of its derivatives. uh, It will be be a case-by-case basis whether I use any other derogatory language towards black people, but the only times I will be using them is when I have to make reference directly to the content at hand. I don't think using that type of language generally, even in an educational setting, is is very useful. It seems kind of backwards to educate people against oppression by using the language of the oppressor, so we're going to try to avoid that as much as possible. With that being said, yeah, today's episode is kind of the history of blackface and American folk classics, and the good reasons that people tend to get up in arms about them when something happens, such as your prime minister is found in a photo from Halloween from many years ago in blackface. So with that in mind... Uh, today's episode has a lot of history and it's really important and we're going to get into it. Okay, so a minstrel show. Who was involved? What was it? Where did they happen? When did they happen? When did they stop happening? Why did they happen? Well, we're going to mix up the order of those questions today to begin with it because it might be pertinent for you guys to know what a minstrel show even was because they don't happen anymore. The idea of the minstrel show was usually a comedy of sorts performed on stage mainly for white audiences. It would usually be performed by a troupe with multiple participants up on stage with an audience who sat and watched. The troupe could be mixed, but often it was usually a white person in blackface, a couple white people in blackface who would play a lead character or the featured character in that night's set, because there's going to be some characters and man, we're going to get into it. The show would be comprised of songs first and foremost, but also banter in between them and jokes. So essentially, if you're some person going to a minstrel show in like 1870, you're looking to have a grand old evening. Like that's, that's entertainment, baby. It is theorized that the minstrel show was conceptualized short after Thomas Dartmouth or quote-unquote daddy, Rice's performance of his song Jump Jim Crow on September 22nd, 1830. By 1832, Rice had been shot to stardom in New York. The song and dance routine was meant to mimic an old crippled slave called uh, Jim Crow, which, I mean, I did mention in a previous episode, but since it's been a year, uh, I'm going to put a clip of the song in right here. Come from old Kentucky a long time ago Where I first learned to wheel about and jump Jim Crow Wheel about and turn about and do just so Every time I wheel about I jump Jim Crow I used to take him fiddle every morning afternoon And charm the old buzzard and dance to the raccoon Wheel about and turn about and do just so Every time I wheel about, I jump Jim Crow. I whip my weight in wildcats, I need an alligator, and tear up more ground and give her fifty load of tater. Wheel about and turn about and do just so. Every time I wheel about, I jump Jim Crow.
By the 1840s, the idea of a minstrel show where comedy like this existed was pretty dominant in the culture. Dan Emmett's Virginia Minstrels, the first blackface troupe, debuted in New York's Bowery Amphitheater in 1843. And from there, the tradition took off. From Hannah Glomska and Janet... Bagnosh, Begnosh, I am terribly sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, Janet Begnosh, at uh, Princeton University. During the 1840s, the show was divided into two parts. So the first concentrated largely upon the urban black dandy, the second on the southern plantation slave. Both featured stereotypical caricatures rather than genuine depictions of black people, and were usually demeaning. In the 1850s, music used in these performances shifted to songs maybe partially taken from plantation songs and were increasingly written by white people. Music of the genteel tradition, quote-unquote, now prevailed in the first section where popular and sentimental ballads of the day supplanted the older, blacker tunes. The middle part consisted of the olio, or a potpourri of kind of dancing and musical virtuosity, with parodies of Italian opera sections, because, I mean, let's face it, Italian opera is great for a lot of things, and one of those things is absolutely parody. So yeah, with parodies of Italian opera sections, stage plays, and visiting European singing groups, because sometimes you might have a, a group in that wants to do a, a tiny bit of a set. Uh, the high point of the show was the concluding section called The Walk Around. This was an ensemble finale in which members of the troupe in various combinations participated in song, instrumental, and choral music and dance. So two things you're going to want to note here. The first is that, yeah, I mentioned that Daddy Rice first performed and gained renown in New York City. So if you were thinking that minstrel shows were an entirely Southern phenomenon, my friend, you're going to be sadly mistaken. In a text by minstrel show expert, which, I mean, that's, that's kind of a... <laughs> What a title, man. What an academic title to have. Uh, Dave Cock or Dale, sorry, Dale. Dale Cockrell writes that not only were minstrel shows more popular in the northern states, but people could be found hooting and hollering at them as much as one might during a modern football game. This was not just a passing fancy in the United States either, as minstrel shows traveled up to Canada and even to Western Europe to display their antics. Interestingly, too, after the American Civil War, there were some areas in the South where minstrel shows were actually banned despite the show's disparaging attitude towards black people. So, it's it's something they're all... Everybody's kind of... Everybody participated, and we're all guilty. <laughs> At least, you know, if you're a white person living in North America or in Western Europe, we're all guilty. <laughs> Uh, the structure of the show would then change again after the American Civil War, which would launch more demand for music and performance reminiscing of the times before the abolition of slavery, which many new songs and minstrel shows of this era were about. In the 1850s, we also see the emergence of a third skit largely dedicated to poking fun at life on a plantation. So as a summary from McGill University, the typical minstrel performance followed a three-act structure. The troupe first danced onto stage, then exchanged wisecracks and sang songs. The second part featured a variety of entertainments, including the pun-filled stump speech. The final act consisted of a slapstick musical plantation skit and surrounding a central tenant of making fun of black people at that, and then the black elements in the show would also pick up again because this is when we would start to see freed black people sometimes show up in minstrelsy groups, which wasn't super common, but it did happen because, I mean, you know, if it's between that and fucking trying to work on a plant, like a, a plantation, a no longer slave plantation, but like a sharecropped situation, I mean, let's be real, you probably want to be a performer <laughs> or something other than that because, man, <laughs> talk about backbreaking labor. But Laura, I hear you scream from the wings. There were so many black people around before the Civil War. Why could they not have just performed? It might have been exploitative, but at least they were making money off of these things. They were just lazy, weren't they? 
Uh, the short answer to that is no. <laughs> the long answer to that is for a hell of a long time in the United States, it was actually entirely illegal for black people to be performers in various capacities. So in the pre-Civil War era, it was largely unheard of for black people to be performers for white audiences in any shape or form. So anything. Uh, this would soften a little bit more, of course, after the Civil War, which is why we see black performers sometimes popping up in minstrel groups, but black people not being able to perform for white audiences or in white-only venues would stay largely a social rule into the mid-1960s like 1960s or so. Uh, we'll see this later when we talk about jazz and definitely rock and Motown performers, who in some cases might be allowed to perform in a hotel lounge eventually, but then not be able to stay in that hotel because it was designated as a whites-only space, which, I mean, that just fucking sucks. These troops also didn't include women until around the 1890s, owing to uh, the historical perception of women in acting as all being prostitutes or strumpets. Because it was just a thing back then that if you were a performing woman, you were just assumed to also be doing sex work. Which, I mean, of course, has never been looked on fondly in society, but I mean, go women. So yes, after the Civil War, we have a resurgence of blackface minstrelsy, which unfortunately lasts for a hot minute, pretty much uh, entirely dropping off in 1919. As civil rights work became more popular and people shifted their attention to new exploitative forms of entertainment, like the circus. Which, I mean, I would love to do an episode on circus music. I, I just, I'm very fascinated by circuses. As a person who was born female and can grow a beard, I've always kind of felt a kinship to the bearded women in the circus. But I don't actually know if I can get enough musical history on circus music in order to make an episode. But we'll see. So this isn't to say, of course, that the relics of minstrelsy completely vanished. For example, many of the songs and jokes used would get repurposed for vaudeville shows, which would carry on until the 1930s or so, and of course uh, become eventually reminisced about in movies like White Christmas, which is the intro music that I had for this episode was from the musical White Christmas, which is something that my family watches every year. We even see relics of it too last into media, like I'm sure a lot of you will be familiar from your childhood, which we'll talk about later, but for the most part, like any genre of music, it does definitely get passed up by new genres emerging around the 1900s, such as jazz and Tin Pan Alley music and rags and various things like that, which I mean, if you don't know what those are, we're going to do an episode on them eventually, so don't worry about it. So now we know the history, but what about the content of the show? What actually makes a minstrel show so blatantly offensive? And for that, I'm going to ask you to buckle up, buckaroos, because we're getting in it to win it and it's not great so for starters we have the stock characters the people on stage in a minstrel show were often meant to represent different stock characters that would be present in most minstrel shows of course these characters didn't 100 exist at first but became more solidified over time i'm going to describe some of the characters here but i understand some of you aren't going to know the language so before we get into it a coon quote unquote was a derogatory way to refer to a black person also sometimes used to refer to raccoons kind of interchangeably and a dandy is a stereotypical fashionable man in the late 1800s i would like to thank professor j stanley lemons of rhode island university for this description the minstrel show was america's first national popular entertainment form and from it came two of the classic stereotype characters of blacks one was zip coon and the other was jim crow Zip Coon was a preposterous, citified dandy. In the minstrel shows, he was easily recognized in his bright, loud, exaggerated clothes, so usually a swallowtail coat with wide lapels, gaudy shirts and striped pants, spats, and a top hat. 
He was a high-stepping strutter with a mismatched vocabulary. He put on airs, acted elegant, but was betrayed by his pompous speech filled with malapropisms. Malapropisms being words mistakenly used in place of other words that sound similar. Jim Crow represents the slow-thinking, slow-moving country and plantation black person. He wore tatters and rags and, and a battered hat. He spent his time sleeping, fishing, hunting possums, or shuffling along slower than molasses in January, except when stealing chickens or dancing on the levee. Of course, these minstrel characters did not exhaust the stereotypes. Equally common was the image of the, the N-word as a servant and a maid. There was also Old Uncle Tom, Old Uncle Ramus, Aunt Jemima, Mandy the Maid, Preacher Brown, Deacon Jones, Rastus and Sambo, and the Old Mammy character, unnamed. <laughs> so let's break down some of these a little. First, we're going to get Zip Coon, which by the description we learn is a black person that has taken it upon himself to dress in the way those do when living in the city. This man is meant to be a sort of caricature, but of what? This goes back to the ideas of race and how non-black people perceive black people during this era. Due to racial ideologies and social attitudes at the time, the majority of viewing audiences, especially within the American sphere, still weren't necessarily primed to see black people as human, and when they were, they weren't exactly seen as fully human, they were seen as a severely different kind of human, underdeveloped mentally and culturally, which, I mean, we all know is bullshit. Though the idea of people of different races being considered subhuman has unfortunately come up at various points throughout history, these ideas were then exacerbated by the institution of slavery, which were also enshrined in the creation of the American Constitution, fun fact. The, from the ACLU, or the American Civil Liberties Union, 40 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence owned slaves. Under the Constitution, a slave was counted as three-fifths of the three-person. This pretty much counted during issues of voting, so if you were to vote, your vote would count more or less depending on the amount of slaves that you held, and those slave votes technically would count as three-fifths of the person. That being said, the slave was not allowed to vote, so it's kind of a really shitty backwards system. When slaves were then freed and white people had to wrestle with the concept of black people actually being fully formed human beings, they still got the shaft. This can be uh, best emblemized in the 1857 Supreme Court case Dred Scott versus John F. A. Sanford, where Chief Justice Roger B. Taney, I believe it's Taney, dismissed the humanity of those of African descent, saying that black people, quote, are not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution and can therefore claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for and secures to citizens of the United States. So the Three-Fifths Compromise, as it's known, remained active in the American Constitution until exactly July 9th, 1868, when the 14th Amendment was written into the Constitution, saying that all black people should be counted as full citizens. Which, by the way, as a bonus not-so-fun fact for this episode, because nothing has actually ever been fully removed from the Constitution entirely, the Three-Fifths Compromise is still 100% viewable in legal copies of the Constitution. It's Article 1, Section 2, if you're interested. If you're a white person, imagine having to read that as a black person in America knowing that that's there, and if you're a black person listening to this, I know there's nothing I can do as a white-ass Canadian to make any of it better, but I just want to say I'm really fucking sorry, because that, that has to suck. Like, in, in immeasurable words, that has to suck. So the character Zip Coon represents then is the comical subhuman black person trying to act white by dressing in white people clothes, however poorly, and taking on more intellectual speech patterns often associated with white people because who the hell is getting an education in America at this time? It's, it's usually white people. Uh, this sort of relegation to character behavior ramps up the nth degree after the abolition of slavery to try to keep freed slaves and other black Americans as socially marginalized as possible by disempowering them and by keeping their perception in society as inept as possible. 
On the other end of the spectrum, we have Jim Crow, who I mentioned in my episode on slave and gospel music, I think. As many of you may also already know, Jim Crow also became the name associated with the era of severe mistreatment and written and unwritten rules governing which parts of society black Americans could engage with, which started soon after the Civil War and lasted roughly 100 years until 1968. From the description, Jim Crow fits a similar sort of racial stereotype, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, aimed at disempowering black people, which is to say that they were depicted as uneducated and lazy and backwoodsy sort of folk who did not really know jack from shit. But Laura, what's with all these familial connections, you ask bewildered? Uncle Tom and Aunt Jemima? Obviously, if they gave them fun familial connections, that must also mean that they loved and respected black people enough in order to consider them family. Uh, well, no, not not really, no. Uh, you see, during this era of slavery, some slaves were employed in and around houses as wet nurses or nannies, butlers, cleaners, and other household staff to ensure the smooth operation of a large plantation house. Of course, as many of these people do, those who owned large estates and properties would eventually have their own kids, because, you know, people just be having kids. These kids would often come to form some sort of familial bonds with the black enslaved people who were in charge of taking care of them, because, I mean, when you're around, so- when somebody's practically raising you, and it's not your parents eventually you're gonna form some bond with them and that was kind of the case in a lot of these houses especially as the more sort of aristocratic that they got so yeah they would eventually form some sort of familial bonds with these enslaved black people who were in charge of taking care of them for much of their youth leading children to refer to them as aunt or uncle or mammy in some cases these names themselves also then came to stand for certain caricatures of uneducated unthreatening black people For example, from the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, the Mammy stereotype developed as an offensive racial caricature constructed during slavery and popularized primarily through minstrel shows. Enslaved black women were highly skilled domestic workers, working in the homes of white families and caretakers for their children. The trope painted a picture of a domestic worker who had undying loyalty to their slaveholders as caregivers and counsel. This image ultimately sought to legitimize the institution of slavery. The Mammy stereotype gained increasing popularity after the Civil War and into the 1900s. Considered a trusted figure in white imaginations, Mammies represented contentment and served as nostalgia for whites concerned about racial equality. So Uncle Tom, uh, the story written by Harriet Beecher Stowe in 1852, featured the title character as a large, broad-chested, powerfully made man whose truly African features were characterized by an expression of grave and steady good sense, united with much kindliness and benevolence. So kind of the caricature of the the wise old black man. Uh, He forfeits his own chance at escaping bondage and loses his life to ensure the freedom of other slaves. The stereotype of Uncle Tom is innately submissive, obedient, and in constant desire of white approval. I'm sure any of you who've ever gone to, like, an estate sale or some form of, like, tacky old person yard sale, like, great-grandpappy's died and he's he's passing down all his worldly treasures, uh, I'm sure some of you have definitely seen a mammy figure of some variety, typically characterized as a fat black woman with massive red lips and kind of a frumpy house dress. If not, you probably remember Aunt Jemima. She got turned into the famous Aunt Jemima that we know on the pancake syrup. So as a bonus, if you happen to hear about the hubbub of removing Aunt Jemima as both the name and face of a brand in the United States, this is some of the history behind that decision. I would say it's a fantastic decision because, man, that's racist. It also goes to show how long the shadows of this type of racism really are because that change was only officially implemented in fucking 2021. Uncle Ben, you you probably know Uncle Ben or at least heard of Uncle Ben, the old dude with the rice, uh, same situation. So we as white people, and I'm including myself in this because while I haven't actively created a fucking caricature of some black guy to use in the selling of 
I don't know, beans. I've still been complicit in the consumption of these products with this imagery or that have used this imagery at some point in my short pitiful life. So we have used and continue to use these stereotypes because not only were they comforting to us back then, but they have also actively worked to keep our association of black people in places where it would remain the most non-threatening to us. So we have those characters, but what actually went on during these fucking shows? Well, you had all these characters, you see, which we've established for the most part were just white guys in blackface, oftentimes with exaggerated features that black people were stereotyped to have, dressed up as these preposterous stereotypes of black people in the white conscience, dumb and slow or dumb and metropolitan. The dumb was pretty non-negotiable here, guys. Telling stories, singing songs, and cracking jokes. But Laura, you chime in with great fervor. Aside from the imagery, that actually doesn't sound too bad. They were just having a bit of fun. Which I mean, one, did you not listen to what I've been saying for the past ten minutes? Because it's pretty fucking dehumanizing stuff. And two, the fucked upness of it doesn't stop at the portrayals of these characters. It definitely bleeds into the audio as well. So as previously mentioned, Jump Jim Crow is very emblematic of the music that we're going to get into. Before we get into the music, though, I want to briefly elaborate on some of the other components of the show, and truth be told, it was uh, some really miserable shit. So in the later part of the 1850s, the songs and performances took a darker turn, and where some of the humor previously employed in the shows had been about divisions in class and sometimes even poking fun of the upper classes, they now pretty much exclusively dealt with and were intended to depict black people as either slaves yearning to return to their masters or as carefree, unintelligent folk trying and failing miserably to integrate into white society. This also frequently included issues of misogyny and anti-equality politics more generally. So as an example from McGill University, when one character joked, Jim, I think the ladies ought to vote, another replied, no, Mr. Johnson, ladies are supposed to care very little about politics, and yet the majority of them are strongly attached to parties. So we have both of the parties here, both black men, both speaking in a dialect. I didn't speak in the dialect because it's, it just, it feels too fucking racist to come out of my mouth as a white person, but I, I will leave it in the script if, if it's something you want to view, which I'm going to be posting in the link underneath this episode. So we have both of these parties, both black men, both, well, white men in blackface, uh, both speaking in this dialect that is meant to betray them as uneducated, speaking about a subject that neither of them are supposed to know much about because politics at this time is very much a white dominated thing and disparaging women while we're at it. Cause man, that just sounds like fun for the whole fucking family. You're just using a oppressed group of people to further objectify and oppress another group of people. Sounds great guys. This kind of sets the tone for the type of music that one would hear at a minstrel show. So the music of the minstrel show in terms of its technical background, which was actually really hard to find information on, and not just because I don't have access to a lot of my academic subscriptions anymore, but it's just not talked about. It's just kind of assumed that we know what it sounds like. But the technical background took after the folk music tradition that was becoming more and more solidified in the United States, so lyrics were often in English or badly accented English in patterns reminiscent of English folk songs, and the instruments might consist of banjo, violins, drums, tambourines, and whatever else the troupe might be able to get their hands on at the time. The songs featured in the minstrel show were typically called Ethiopian songs, as black people were often referred to as Ethiopians regardless of where the hell they were actually from. This was partially due to the fact that during the time, Ethiopia was one of the only African-controlled nation-states, and so being there was abundance of people of color there and few white people there, it just made sense to them, I guess. People who composed these songs were often called composers of Ethiopian music, which I imagine might actually make things really difficult if you're a scholar that's trying to study actual Ethiopian music. So, for the rest of this section, I'm going to be focusing on one dude specifically named Mr. Stephen Collins Foster. 
Now, for some of you, you might already know him because he is pretty famous, but uh, Foster wasn't the only dude out here writing racist-ass music for minstrel shows. I want to make that absolutely clear. I'm just choosing to focus on him because his impact on minstrel music, as well as the broader notion of American culture, is probably the most recognizable for people growing up in North America. Like, I can almost guarantee you, if you were born in North America and have lived here your entire life, you have probably heard his music at some point. It would be hard not to. So, who was this man? Stephen Collins Foster was a white American man born on the 4th of July, 1826, in Lawrenceville. Not Lawrence, Lawrenceville. Which, honestly, it just kind of sounds like you're saying Lawrence in the most, like, East Canadian accent possible. Oh yeah, no, Lawrence, down by the way there, bud. But, uh, he was born in Lawrenceville, Pennsylvania. Uh, two things here of how fucking fitting was it that this dude was born on the 4th of July, because he would be known as America's first composer. Like, he just popped out of the pussy and was like, I'm gonna write racist music, and I'm gonna go down in history for some of that. Secondly, you'll notice that this dude was born in fucking Pennsylvania, so you can't really get much farther north if you try. I mean, you can go east to north, I guess. But that's, it's, it's a northern state. It borders Canada. But contrary to what most people might think, Pennsylvania did absolutely have slavery in it at a a time. However, it wouldn't have been super popular during the time that Foster was alive due to being considered, and very rightly so, inhumane and unholy by the various religious factions that lived in Pennsylvania, so Quakers, Methodists, and Baptists mostly, as well as large swaths of Germans, Dutch, and Swiss immigrants who came to call Pennsylvania their home who also really weren't pro-slavery at this point in history. So what the hell did this man write? Well, he wrote pretty much fucking everything. He wrote every song ever. That's the end of the podcast. There'll never be another episode. No, but like, if you think about most old American folk songs that you would have learned about in school or just heard in the North American zeitgeist in cartoons like Looney Tunes and shit, there's a good chance that he's the one who wrote them. Even as a young kid growing up in Canada, I personally remember hearing those songs in Saturday morning cartoons. So, Foster was only 18 when he wrote his first song, Open Thy Lattice Love, and it was published in 1844. From there, he wrote prolifically, with some of his massive hits being Oh Susanna in 1847, The Camp Down Races in 1850, Jeannie with the Light Brown Hair in 1845, Old Folks at Home, also known as Swanee River in 1851, My Old Kentucky Home in 1853, and Beautiful Dreamer, which was presumably written sometime before he died in 1864. All in all, he's known to have composed 200 and some songs, serving as both the composer and lyricist for most, if not all, of them. When I say his songs were hit songs, it's kind of important to put that into scale, and I love a scale comp- Anybody who knows me knows I love a historical scale comparison. Because when we think of something as being a hit now, we're likely to think of how many plays a song gets via streaming services such as iTunes or Spotify or YouTube, which, I mean, rightly so, that's how we measure these things now. Some of us might also think of when we would hear about albums going gold or platinum, Remember physical discs? I miss physical media ownership. I would love to have a job to purchase CDs one day directly from bands. Wouldn't that be great? But uh, obviously, this shit didn't exist in the mid-1800s. So, I mean, the record player doesn't even really get invented until 10 years and change after Collins dies. So what are we talking about when we're talking about hits or big songs in general? We're talking about how many copies of the actual physical sheet music that were sold. So 130,000 sales of a song doesn't seem like much now, given the millions of plays a song can get within days of on release. So like your Doja Cats and your Despacitos and Drake, whatever else is popular. Bilby Eyelash? Yeah, her. Uh, given that, but I mean, back in the 1850s, this was a this was an awful lot. Hell, the, the population of New fucking York was only around 96,000 people in 1850, so we gotta keep that in mind. We also have to consider that for every person who was buying sheet music, there were also likely a small handful of people who enjoyed it. 
who otherwise didn't buy it because they couldn't play sheet music or couldn't read sheet music. So when we talk about copies sold of a specific song during this time period and before, we're generally talking about the written sheets that were purchased and then played at parties or small gatherings of people for everyone to enjoy. If you played well enough, of course, because otherwise no music for you and no friends for you, you freaking fool. Now, for the music, we're only going to be looking at two of Foster's songs today, because Lord knows if we went through his whole fucking library, we'd be here for 87 years. And frankly, I don't think my voice would hold out for that long, and a couple of you might think to hunt me down for sport, and I don't, I don't know if I want that at this point in my life yet. So, that being said, if you want to look up any of his music, I would highly recommend it, because, again, these songs are very wildly popular, and you'll have no trouble finding them online. So instead of talking about these songs first and then playing them like I usually do, uh, because I've already set up a bunch of the background, we're just going to get straight to some of the songs. So to keep any discernible form of organization, we're going to start in chronological order and we're going to talk about Oh Susanna, which I will play a clip of right here. Came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. I'm going to Louisiana, my true love for to see. It rained all night the day I left the weather, it was dry. The sun's so hot, I froze to death. Susanna, don't you cry. Oh, Susanna, oh, don't you cry for me. I come from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. telegraph and traveled down the river the electric fluid magnified and killed 500 nigger the bull gun bust the horse run off i really thought i'd die i shut my eyes to hold my breath susanna don't you cry oh susanna oh don't you cry for me i come from alabama with the banjo on my knee Okay, so the lyrics I scraped from a PDF of the original sheet music that's being hosted on the Library of Congress website, because God forbid they have them in any easily available cut and paste format or anything, I'm going to try and read the contained verses to the best of my ability without the shitty accent, but I am going to paste the link to the Library of Congress sheet music in the transcript of this episode for people who are interested in what the dialectal version looks like. So the first stanza is roughly... I came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. I'm going to Louisiana, my true love for to see. It rained all night the day I left. The weather was bone dry. The sun's so hot I froze to death. Susanna, don't you cry. Then we get to the chorus, which a lot of you are going to recognize because, again, it's just one of those tunes that you just hear everywhere. Oh, Susanna, don't you cry for me. I come from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. And then the second verse is... We really start getting dicey. I jumped aboard the telegraph and traveled down the river. The electric fluid magnified and killed 500 N-words. The bulging bust, the horse ran off. I really thought I'd die. I shut my eyes to hold my breath. Susanna, don't you cry. 
Immediately, we're struck with the accented English, which is meant to portray an overly ignorant black man who is incapable of speaking quote-unquote proper English. This is done in two ways. The first is through the use of the written dialectal speech, shortening and misspelling words in order to get a certain pronunciation from the singer, who again was just a white dude putting on blackface and performing a caricature. So, I mean, while some of these speech patterns might sound similar to a type of speech that could have been heard, they were super over-exaggerated and not at all. Not at all, actually, what people sounded like. But then there's also the content itself. So, it rained all night the day I left, the weather was bone dry, and the sun so hot I froze to death. Are very much meant to show how stupid this guy is. Like, the buddy can't get a turn of phrase right. He doesn't know shit. So then we get to the second verse, which is really, I mean, God. It, it, I actually just want to quickly define some of the words in here, because the song was written 180 years ago. So, I mean, some, some of you might not know. So from what I can tell, because I haven't had any contradiction to the text I've read, but the telegraph is likely just the telegraph pole. So telegraph poles function much like telephone poles that we have now, but back then they would have been transmitting electronic pulses for things like Morse code to communicate faster over long distances, kind of like an old tiny text. And a bull gene is legit just a slang term used in those days for the word engine, so that one's easy peasy lemon squeezy. So as we hear, the second verse continues on with the sh same shitty dialectical elements and general stupidity, but also just murders black folks, because why the hell not? That's, that's funny, right? That counts as entertainment. While researching this episode, I came across more than one source that called this easily one of the most racist things that Collins ever wrote, which I mean, in terms of outright, lol, the death of hundreds of black people makes for funny jokes for my song, lol. Absolutely, but I also might argue that showing the plantations as sites of happiness for slaves might also be a bit worse because it's insidious and the implications of it, but then that might also just be me, so, you know. But yeah, overall, this is just an example of a song that is absolutely acceptable and was 100% played in a minstrel show. But Laura! I hear you scream from the, the heat vent that's a couple feet in front of me. It's just a funny joke! That's what's wrong with people like you. You cannot take a joke. Here's the thing, buddy boy. If we, if we took the joke out of context... We didn't have the rest of the song, we didn't have the cultural understanding that goes with it, we didn't have the slur in there, and we just had a standalone joke, not written in an intentionally racist dialect, then maybe sure. Sure. Yeah, it would just be a funny mix-up in turns of phrase. Lord knows I'm fucking guilty of mixing up turns of phrase all the time. For example, in my house, instead of saying, like, I don't want to pat myself on the back, we tend to say I don't want to rub my own shoulders because I, uh, my brain is terrible at remembering turns of phrase, but, but because the joke is written the way it is with all the racist context during the time period it is, with the rest of the song being what it is, it's fucking racist. <laughs> also, just on the note of jokes, too, jokes are incredibly insidious when it comes to spreading shitty ideology. Not only do they function as a signal to other shitty people that, hey, we tolerate the possibility of this idea, and it's okay to make people uncomfortable so long as it makes you laugh, but also when people call them out on it, they just fall back on, it's just a joke, man, liberals can't take a joke, why you gotta be so fucking butthurt about it? So there seems to have finally been a mass wake-up of academics to the idea that the alt-right is pretty damn good at spreading their ideology through the use of memes and irony and satire. So just a quick rundown on that, if you have access to The Guardian, there's an article which I'm going to link in the transcript for this episode, which briefly goes over that issue. If you want a more in-depth read on the situation, especially how things like that are affecting the current political situation and the landscape that we live in, maybe think about picking up a copy of the book called Proud Boys and the White Ethnostate, How the Alt-Right is Warping the American Imagination by Professor Alexandra Ministern. It's very good and I highly recommend it. So now we're going to compare Oh Susanna with one of Foster's later songs called My Old Kentucky Home. 
Now, this song specifically is the second largest reason that I wanted to choose Stephen Collins Foster as our case study, because unlike many other composers of minstrel music, Foster supposedly started feeling empathy for enslaved black persons in America, and supposedly his music changed to reflect this attitude. So I'm not going to make a definitive opinion on it in this podcast for two reasons that we're going to get into afterwards, but we're going to discuss some of the controversy because, I mean, there's a bunch of academic controversy about it, so why not? So without further ado, here is a clip of my old Kentucky home. I'm going to speak some of the lyrics for those who didn't get them because I understand that sometimes listening to lyrics with, you know, music in the background is a little bit hard for people. So, verse one. I mean, it's a pretty short song, so I'm going to go through verse one and two. But verse one, the sun shines bright in the old Kentucky home. To summer, the darkies are gay. The corn tops ripe in the meadows and bloom while the birds make music all the day. The young folks roll on the little cabin floor, all merry, all happy and bright. By and by, hard times come a-knocking at the door, then my old Kentucky home good night. 
The chorus, weep no more, my lady, oh, weep no more today. We will sing one song for the old Kentucky home, for the old Kentucky home far away. Verse 2, they hunt no more for the possum and the coon on meadow, the hill, and the stone. They sing no more by the glimmer of the moon on the bench by the old cabin door. The day goes by like a shadow over the heart, with sorrow where all was delight. The time has come when the darkies have to part, then my old Kentucky home good night. So just for context, uh, darkies is a word that was used during the times as a more polite way to refer to black individuals. It's it's something that we consider a slur now. So, I mean, I do feel uncomfortable using it, but given that was in the hi- historic song text, I felt it was pertinent to use it. I'm only going to use it further when it is called upon during the speaking of academic texts. Uh, so My Old Kentucky Home was published, not necessarily written, but published in 1853, only six years after O Susanna. Talk about an ideological turnaround, man. Uh, immediately upon listening to it, you can hear the difference in tone as well as vocabulary. It's a more somber and plaintive song than O Susanna. It's neither particularly funny nor would it lend itself particularly well to a comedic interpretation. You might even say that the song represents a different type of music altogether, which is actually a perspective that some scholars take referring to songs of this nature, calling them plantation melodies. Because if it wasn't clear, this song is a sad and nostalgic nod to living on a plantation, which, as previously mentioned, would be typically set in the third act of a minstrel show. So this, however, didn't stop contemporaries of Foster from really enjoying it. Really, really enjoying it. And really enjoying it as a challenge to the way that society tended to see black people. To borrow words from one of Foster's friends, a man named Robert P. Nevin, quote, The art in Foster's hands teemed with a nobler significance. It dealt in its simplicity with universal sympathies and taught us all to feel with the slaves the lowly joys and sorrows it celebrated. And if this dude's word doesn't convince you, we also have Mr. Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist writer, statesman, and like a million other things, Frederick Douglass. He said of Stephen Foster, it would seem almost absurd to say it, considering the use that has been made of them, that we have allies in Ethiopian songs. These songs that constitute our national music and without which we have no national music. They are heart songs and the finest feelings of human nature are expressed in them. Lucy Neal, Old Kentucky Home, and Uncle Ned can make the heart sad as well as merry and can call forth a tear as well as a smile. They awaken the sympathies for the slave in which anti-slavery principles take root and flourish. And so they might have, for a time, from what we can tell, even though the lyrics are super fucking sympathetic and nostalgic for plantation life, uh, many people did, at the time, take it as trying to promote the rights of slaves and uh, eventually former slaves. So the debate doesn't come then from the reception of his work during the time so much as it comes from the motivation for doing it as well as how people received it after his death. It's one thing if Buddy woke up one day and went, hmm, I've been a racist sack of shit for far too long. It's time to be friends with and learn about and lift up the struggles of my fellow black Americans. And it's another to be like, hmm, my music isn't being received as well as it used to because I guess being so overtly racist in words isn't as fashionable as it used to be. So let's change it to make it more palatable for people, which surprise, surprise, there's some evidence for. The evidence comes directly from a letter Foster wrote to fellow Ethiopian song performer Edwin P. Christie. See, back then, it wasn't uncommon for people to commission songs from composers and just throw their own name on it to make them seem more impressive, especially if you were of an affluent nature, because God forbid artists actually be able to claim ownership for their music in a meaningful way for like another 120 years, which is what Christie did. 
He commissioned the song Old Folks at Home, a.k.a. Swanee River, in 1852 and promptly slapped his name all over it, like, trying to let your roommates know which of the leftovers in the fridge are definitely yours, which he did for, and hold on to your britches here, because the cost is absolutely gonna pants you, but Foster signed over the rights of that song for $5. (laughs) For a $5, a $5 footlong, you could get your name on a song that you didn't write, but which is bound to astound audiences. I mean, to be fair, like, it's funny if you actually think about it, though, in, like, today's dollars, because $5 back then was about... 180 bucks now so imagine you went up to i don't know like doja cat and went hey girl i know you're really fucking busy but could you compose me a song i could like claim to be mine a real slapper a real jam of a tune and all for slightly under 200 dollars. thanks babe like that's that's just it's fucking wild to me anyhow christy commissioned the song and then not too long after received a letter from foster which said multiple things but the thesis of the thing was and i quote I had the intention of omitting my name on Ethiopian songs owing to the prejudice against them by some which might injure my reputation as a writer of another style of music, but I find that by my efforts I have done a great deal to build up a taste for Ethiopian songs among refined people by making the words suitable to their tastes instead of the trashy and really offensive words which belong to some songs of that order. Therefore, I have concluded to reinstate my name on the songs and to pursue the Ethiopian business without fear or shame at the same time that I will wish to establish my name as the best Ethiopian songwriter. And continue writing for minstrel shows he sure fucking did. As historian Emily Bingham describes in her paper, Let's Buy It! Tourism and the My Old Kentucky Home Campaign in Jim Crow, Kentucky, People focused on the song's first verse and chorus, and because of ongoing minstrel stereotyping and the racial tenor of Jim Crow America, most whites heard a lament for a happy home embedded in a glamorous portrait of life on the plantation. So herein lies the problem. A dubiously intentioned man with dubiously intentioned music played for dubiously intentioned people, who then used it to racist ends. But even besides the academic debate, there are still people who we should consider when we talk about salvaging these types of historical musics, and that's contemporary black Americans, who are still very much affected by the anti-black stereotypes in these songs. Because even though the stereotypes have changed slightly, they are absolutely still used in ways that hinder the way that black people are perceived in modern society. But Laura, you cry again from my vent. You should probably really get out of there because, you know, being crammed in a heating vent can't be good for your neck. This is just another example of people being too woke and getting butthurt about something, isn't it? And and man, like, one, regardless of when people are mad about something, if there's a large portion of the population who goes, hey, can you stop being a dick to us? Maybe we should listen to them and stop being a dick to them. But also number two, the pushback to this song has been going on for a hot fucking minute, y'all. Part of the reason I wanted to bring up my old Kentucky home is because it seems to be at the center for constant debate over whether or not its status symbol as a treasured American folk song should supersede the opinions and feelings of many black Americans because even though the song was supposedly anti-slavery during the time, reading the lyrics now, even after replacing the word quote-unquote darkies with people, it still comes off as a very nostalgic reminiscent of the good old plantation days which is only reinforced when we see the song being used to mark historical significance, which is precisely what it's fucking being used for in today's world. So in terms of its use as a state song, My Old Kentucky Home has been used as a state song of Kentucky since 1928. In the 1950s, some broadcasting companies, namely CBS and NBC, started thinking, hey, maybe if we're going to be using the song, we should remove the word darkies in it 
Uh, it is, in fact, 100 years after the fucking Civil War. Maybe we still shouldn't be using language like these on the news, to which I would say, I mean, it's about about time, man. And I mean, hey, like, it, it might have been a step forward in the status of the song if there hadn't been blowback by um, the fucking state rep of Kentucky at the time, Frank Chelf, who straight up got so angry about it that he proposed a bill that prohibited the unauthorized changing of song lyrics of any variety with the threat of felony charges and jail time for repeat offenders. This, of course, in 1950s fashion, was introduced with much posturing about pride as well as a healthy fucking dose of McCarthyism, with him trying to say that the politics of the few do not override the enjoyment of the many, and that if people tried to censor it, it would be like the Soviets dictating culture, as if dictating how culture should be enjoyed is not exactly what he was doing at the time. The offending word was officially taken out of the state song when, and yeah, this is going to really sound bizarre, but it was only taken out after a visiting Japanese youth group sang the song for a state legislature without admitting it, and everyone was subsequently so fucking embarrassed that the next fucking day there was a bill introduced to censor it out. This all happened more recently than you might expect, too, in 1986. <laughs> now we could try our hardest to argue plausible deniability for these songs and in, in they were only used in these sorts of events, and people were genuinely trying their hardest to make the songs less offensive. Uh, and people understood it for its possible intention of being an abolitionist song in some cases, but it's it's not really the case in a lot of the ways that the song has been used. So, for example, the Daughters of Confederacy, a neo-Confederate group originally composed of white descendants of Confederate Civil War soldiers, now a group numbering about 15,000 people and notoriously standing for many of the principles that Confederates fought for, use my old Kentucky home as part of that brand of Southern pride, well known to anyone with half a fucking brain as just three prejudices in a trench coat masquerading as patriotism. They actually included it in the official songbook of theirs, which was published in 1901. And in another historical case, in 1914, black children at Boston public schools had the lyrics of My Old Kentucky Home, as well as a number of other minstrel show tunes jeered at them by white kids following the use of a book called 40 Best Songs. In response to the ensuing outcry of mostly black parents, as well as the pastor of the First African M.E. Church of Boston, an action by the NAACP, the book was soon pulled from shelves, prompting a nationwide discussion of Foster's work, its place in American culture, and what could be done about it. I will make a quick note and say, while I don't typically advocate for pulling books because libraries are an excellent place of education, the idea of it being taken off the shelves at least somewhat is appropriate given that it is actively praising the type of language used in the songs. So, like, best is literally in the title of the book. I'm all for having problematic books. It's part of how we learn about things from looking at our mistakes and learning from where to go based on that. The thing is, typically when we have books that are deemed as problematic or have language in it that isn't used anymore or, you know, depicts various behaviors that aren't appropriate anymore, we tend to have two situations play out. So either, number one, we have a disclaimer somewhere in the book or in the preface or in the introductory chapter or something like that telling us that like hey these words aren't good don't use them don't be running around saying them and definitely don't be using them to slander your fellow black americans or number two we have a cultural understanding of the book as a historical source of information so for example being a student myself who studied a lot of Holocaust history and the culture surrounding it, a few years ago I found it prudent to purchase a copy of Mein Kampf. So for those listening who do not know this text, it's one of Adolf Hitler's fundamental texts and it, and it is all sorts of disgusting anti-Semitism and just some of the nastiest prejudice you can imagine. 
Though there is not a preface in my copy of the book condemning its contents, we have a cultural understanding at this point that if you have a copy of Mein Kampf, you're either academically interested in the fields which concern this book, someone who's accidentally come across a copy of the book, or a wild fucking asshole who bought it in support of its message. So, 40 best songs, the anthology of songs that contain those songs, however, had neither of these. It didn't have the cultural understanding, nor did it have a disclaimer. But back to the subject matter at hand, all in all, the minstrel shows and minstrel songs don't tend to age well. I tend to view them in the same way as the whole statue of fucking colonizers and murderers and other people we tend to celebrate the atrocities of for some fucking reason in North America. If people are so insistent on it being a very important part of history, then they should be properly learned about in a museum or a history class in school. But maybe not the history classes y'all get in the States because, oh my god, Having read some of y'all's textbooks is like glimpsing into like an RPG being slowly locked, loaded, and launched into an orphanage, just destroying potential future generations' ability to exist meaningfully in the world. So not in public spaces. You wouldn't learn about these things in public spaces where, you know, they can slap the affected minorities in the face to remind them that, hey, not too long ago, you were property, and a lot of people in this country still think you're so unimportant that a piece of metal in the shape of an asshole or a song is more important than making you feel comfortable in the country that you happen to live in. (laughs) So with that, I think that's going to be all for this week's podcast. Uh, I hope you've learned something new, and I hope you've heard something that you like, or maybe in this case for this week, something that you really don't like. If you haven't, then there's always next week, where honestly, I don't I don't know what I'm going to do next. I'm, I'm toying with a couple ideas of either going back and doing sea shanties, like going back in time, just doing some sea shanties, or murder ballads, because I've been really on those two for a past little while, or continuing uh, on in the time continuum to do Tin Pan Alley and Ragtime and Big Band. In the meantime, though, if one of y'all would like to suggest a topic, I would love nothing more than to answer your musical questions or talk about topics that interest you guys in music. So you can feel free to drop me a line at justamusicpodcast at gmail.com. I hope you guys have the sweet fucking month and I'll try to get to you guys next month. Bye.